Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful day and all that you're bringing with us, Lord, as we as we look at the prophet Micah and his prophecies to Judah. And Lord, we just ask you to show us what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Micah, chapter 4, verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountain, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and he and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. So we're going to stop there. So it uh, starts out in this one, but in the last days. Okay, so this is telling us what, he, what period that he's talking about because the last days is in reference to the millennial kingdom. And this is a millennial kingdom verse. And we know the millennial kingdom is what? A thousand years. The thousand year reign of Jesus on this current earth at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, so here's a, here's a verse, here's a set of verses about the millennial kingdom. And it says, in the last days it shall come past that the mountain of the house of the Lord, and when it says the mountain, what, which mountain are they referring to? Or where are they referring to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Mount Moriah, that whole, that whole complex there. All right, so the house of the Lord shall be established at the top of the mountain. It shall be exalted above all the hills, and people shall flow into it. And so remember, in the millennial kingdom, Jesus comes down, his foot touches the Mount of Olives, it splits open, the river Jordan starts running backwards and refreshes the Dead Sea and it's made alive, and he rules from Jerusalem. Okay, so for a thousand years, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. All right? And this is what, this is what it's picturing. All the people from all around the world will go to Jerusalem. Now, we know that a many, many, many people are going to be dead at that point. Okay, as much, some people have said, as much as 80% of the world's population will be dead by the time Jesus returns. And at least 66% by my calculations. And that doesn't even count however many people die in that last battle when Satan fights against Jesus in Armageddon. And he just speaks and the sword kills enough people that the blood flows to the, to the neck of the horses, which is, you know, four to five feet of blood in the valley. That's a lot of people dead. And so we see that it's, all the people will come there, and many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. So they're, they're coming. They're, they're desiring to come. It'll be a wonderful time. The millennial kingdom will be a time of peace, a time of no sin. It'll be forced no sin. Okay, they'll be forced into obedience. They'll be thinking about sinning, but they won't be able to act on it. It's a time of righteous rule. And they're going to say, let's go to God's house. And that would be a wonderful time for, for people because right now we, we all know how hard it is to get to people to come to God, much less come to the house of God to, to hear, hear from him. But in that time, they will say, come, let us go. And then we look at this, and he will teach us his ways. You know, pretty amazing. This this indicates that Jesus himself is the teacher. God will teach them how to walk. And we will walk in his paths. Okay? And we look at this. These are not we might or he may. These are he will and we will be obedient. This is the prophecy that says that it's going to be obedience at that time. And we're going to see how he looks at this time. And it says, For the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God will be able to preach to the world. And obviously it says that they will obey. And this is going to be a time, you know, we can't even fathom that. You know, what will it be like to walk in a world 
where people obey God. We get a glimpse of it with certain people, and even then, no matter even if we look at ourselves, we go, we don't fully obey God. This will be a time when people obey God for a thousand years. And that is be a time that we can't fathom because we don't understand it. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations from afar. So he's going to rule. He's going to judge. He's going to vindicate. He's going to make, make decisions. And he will rebuke the nations. He will correct them and make them walk in the right ways. And it says they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And the plowshare is the actual blade of the plow. All right, that's what they call the plowshare. And they show, and their spears into pruning hooks so they can harvest you know, food. So that the weapons of warfare are going to be turned into utensils for production of food. And this is the old battle that goes on even, you know, all over today. And it was really big in the 60s, you know, uh, war or food. And the government, you know, oftentimes will choose war because that's needed to protect the country. And the people are saying, well, spend the money on food. And, but God is saying it will, during the millennial kingdom, all be food. And there won't be a need for war. And then it says, and neither will they learn war anymore. And it's kind of an interesting thought. Uh, I don't know how much it was for girls, but when I was young, the boys all used to play war. War cops and robbers, you know, it was, and then sports and everything. But we used to run around with our guns and shoot each other, you know, pretend to shoot each other and all of that. But it says they won't learn war anymore, even in play or in the schools that teach it or the military uh, training. And it'll be a time of peace, absolute peace that will be there for us. And it's hard, to, it's hard for us to picture. I mean, we live in a world that is so bad that when we read these things, isn't it hard to even picture them? What will it be like without all of this stuff? What will it be like when God's word is followed? What will it be like in a, war, in a world that you don't have to worry about war? You don't have to worry about your house being robbed or your, or your stuff being taken. Then it, it, it's going to be a very interesting time to be there. And it says, but they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Everybody, and this is very clear, they're going to have their own food. Okay, they, they've got their own vine, their own trees. They have food. And it's a picture of abundance of food. It's, no, it's not stingy. Okay, God's saying they'll all have their food. And then this statement, and none shall make them afraid. How many people do we know that walk in fear all the time? <laughs> Some people worry about everything all the time, even with God. But God is saying, in this time, there's not going to be any fears. You're not, you're not going to have people making you afraid. They're, you're not going to worry about people hurting you, breaking into you, your house, you know, stealing your stuff. There's no war. There's plenty of food. And this is a list pretty much of the different things that cause people to go to war. Yeah. Not enough food and being afraid, of, for some reason, of your neighbor. And that's whether it's a local type of small war where people are fighting each other or na nation against nation. There's that fear or food, which is two of the major uh, reasons for going to war. And then verse 5 gives the other one. And, and all people will walk, every one of them, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And religion is the third big reason that people go to war. Okay? You go to war for either you don't have enough resources or you're afraid of your neighbors because they're getting strong and you do a preemptive battle or for religious reasons as we're finding with the rise of ISIS and, and different things and, and the Crusades were a religious war that was going on and many wars have been for religious reasons. And God says for all three major reasons of war will be eliminated through the prophet Micah. And for the millennial kingdom there will be but those who follow God will get to follow him forever. Because remember, what happens at the end of the Millennial Kingdom? Does anybody remember? Satan is released to, te to tempt and test people to, to rebel against God. After a thousand years of living with the rule of Jesus, a perfect government, no war, 
no problems. Satan comes up to try to tempt people. And it says he raises up an army to go against God. And God just speaks from heaven and they're gone and the, and the new heaven and earth comes. So those who follow God will get to follow him forever. Those who are following whatever God it is that they're trying to follow will rebel against God at the end of the millennial kingdom and will be judged. So we see the picture of all of this going on. Verse 6. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halts, halted a remnant, and her that is cast afar off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in, in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the and the stronghold to the daughter of Zion, and unto you shall it come. Even the first domin dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Here we see God's blessing on people. He says, in that day, what day is he referring to? Back to verse 1, in the last days, when all of this is happening. He says, in that day, I will assemble her that halts, or gather together the person who is lame. Okay, God is going to take the weak, the infirmed, and gather them together. And can you imagine when in the last days how many weak and infirm there will be at the, after the, the seven years of tribulation? Those who have followed God are going to be starving in the first, you know, starving and very hungry because you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. So they're not going to have a whole lot of food. They'll have some that they might be able to grow, some that they can scavenge, but they're going to be fairly hungry people. There's going to be injuries. Satan has been out to kill them. And so there's going to be a lot of hurt and injured people. And he says, I will gather her that is driven out. Again, the righteous people who don't take the mark of the beast will be driven away from society because you, can't, you won't be able to survive around other people. Because there will be a time when if you show your face and you don't have the mark of the beast, you will be arrested. So you're not going to hang around other people to turn you in. You're going to hang around with other people who haven't taken the mark of the beast, wherever that might be. And it tells us in Revelation that they're going to, the Jews are going to run and hide once they realize that they've been tricked. Okay? And remember, the, the Antichrist comes up, tells them that they can build their temple, they get their temple all built, and then at some point close to the middle of the tribulation, he reveals that, he took, walks into the temple and says, I am God. And at that time, their eyes are opened, and they realize that they have been tricked. And at that point, they will run and hide. And Jesus refers to that and says, pray that it's not in the winter, you know, and that, you're not heavy, you know, that the woman is not heavy with child, because it will be hard to get away from the security forces, basically, and the arresting officers. But God says, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to gather his children, his remnant. And remember, we've said over and over again, God always has a remnant of people. Elisha was shown that. And he goes, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed my knees. And God says, get back to what I told you to do. There's 7,000 who haven't bent their knee. Okay? And we see that over and over. Even in Noah's day, there was a remnant. It was a very small remnant of only eight people, but there was a remnant. In the, in the tribulation period, there's a remnant. We'll start with 144,000 Jews at the very least. And then they evangelize and get more people to join them. But there's always a remnant of people. During the Middle Ages, when the, when the Catholic Church ruled everything and was really getting away from the Bible, God had a remnant of Christians that followed the Bible. And they were able to work into the Re Reformation. He had the, the call of Luther leading into the Reformation. Okay, We see a remnant of people that follow the Bible. In our day, we see it even now as people are falling away from following the Bible. There's still churches that are the remnant of God following his word. And it's going to get smaller and smaller as time goes on because it's going to be easier and easier to not follow God. And we want to be part of that remnant because God's remnant is there. And we want to keep following that because it's so important to understand 
because Satan will try to make you feel like you're all alone. And that's a strong thing. We've talked about this often. When you're going through trials, when you're going through hard times, when you're going through testing of your faith or, or testing to sin, Satan likes to make you think, well, you're the only one that's going through this. Or worse yet, you're the only one who has ever gone through this. And if, when, he, when he gives you this kind of statement, you need to be able to go back to him, there's nothing new under the sun. According to Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, and that includes all temptations, everything that you're being tried, everything you're being tempted for, everything is, has happened to somebody and is happening to somebody else in our world. So when Satan comes and lies to us about you're the only one, or, or if they only knew how bad you were, they would reject you, you might be surprised because they go, oh, you're going through that problem too? <laughs> Which is the benefit of things like the re re Celebrate Recovery when people get together and they realize I'm not the only one. There's other people doing, going through this kind of material. Or we go through uh, counseling like you're doing for your cigarettes and somebody goes, hey, you know, you're not alone. This is, this is how it happened and others do it. And it's important for us to be able to recognize we aren't alone. We may not be as bad as some people, but we're also not as good as other people in, in, in passing or failing a test. But everybody goes through the same things we're going through. And this is the remnant. God gathers his remnant. And he's going to make a strong nation out of, the, out of the remnant. And they're going to be the leaders. And just think, we as believers, part of the bride of Christ, we come back with him on, on white horses behind him as he takes over for the millennial kingdom and we get to rule with him. And we won't be tempted because we're in our glorified bodies. We don't have a sin nature. And we're going to get to rule with Christ during the millennial kingdom. And it should be a very interesting time. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from thenceforth forever and ever, even forever. He's going to rule through the millennial kingdom. And then when he comes back and creates a new heaven and earth, if you remember, the first thing we see in the new heaven and earth is the holy Jerusalem coming down, the bride adorned for, the, for, the, for her husband. And the size of the Jerusalem is huge. And we remember it's 15,000 miles square and 15,000 miles tall. Okay? Or 1,500, excuse me. 1,500, not thousands. Covers half of the, half of the United States in its size and goes up beyond the atmosphere. So you, knew, you know it's a new heaven and new earth. <laughs> and there are some people who think it's a triangle, it's, or, you know, or it may be cubed. I'm not going to argue that. All we're told is that it's 1,500 uh, miles high. So, but it is going to be a huge place, and that is where we get to rule from. And we get to go all over the, all over the rest of the world, and maybe even the the universe, who knows, it doesn't really tell us if we're stuck here on this planet. I kind of think we'll get to play in all the, all the universities built out there, but we'll see when that happens. <laughs> it doesn't really matter one way or the other. We'll, there'll be plenty for us to do, and we'll be happy with whatever it is he tells us to do. So, any questions or comments before we move on? Okay. Verse 8, And ye, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Unto you shall come even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. All right. The tower of the flock is a specific tower, and it is found outside of Bethlehem. And it is called the tower of the flock. Even to, even to this day, they call it the tower of the flock. Okay, and it's outside of Bethlehem. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 33 and see the first mention of it. Excuse me, 35. And let's see, verse 19. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephraim, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar to Rachel's grave to, unto this day. And the children of Israel journey and spread their tent beyond the door of the tower of Edar, which means flock. So the tower of the flock. Okay? So the tower of the flock, we already know, it's in Bethlehem. And... Rachel is buried near it, okay? And what else happened in Bethlehem? The birth of Jesus. 
And the other thing that happens in, in Bethlehem that is not as well known is that the temple shepherds raise lambs out there for use of the Passover. So Jesus was born, and there are many people that think that Jesus was actually born in the tower of the flock, okay, because of the significance of it being part of the Passover, and he was the Passover lamb. And it makes some, makes some sense, and it would have been a manger. It would have been a place where animals were kept. And I'm not going to argue that. It, it's an interesting interesting thought that people have put out. Uh, and it, it still has mangers. It still has <laughs> places where animals go, so it's not far-fetched. And I throw that out for your, your consideration, for what it's worth. There's many that believe it, and I don't know if I believe it or not, but it makes I can understand why people would go there. And it makes a great picture. It's been mentioned several, the Tower of the Flock has been mentioned several times through the scripture. And in this one, it says that uh, you, you are even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And the context of that is the Tower of the Flock. So if the, the king of the, of, of the earth, the Messiah, came to be born, it makes sense that he would be born at the Tower of the Flock because he's going to be the Passover lamb and it would be tied into this whole picture of the Passover and him being the Passover lamb. And one, one commentator wrote that it, it makes sense that the shepherds would know where to find him because they would go, go there and find him. So I don't know, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I like what I read about it. It makes a lot of sense that he was born at the Tower of the the tower of the flock, or the tower of Edgar. Um, so throw it out. It's where the shepherds would watch their sheep from. They'd go to the top of the tower and watch the sheep in the area. So it is kind of an interesting thing because it does say that, you know, your, your kingdom shall come to the daughter of, of Zion. And that was where Jesus, the, the king, came where the kingdom was going to be established was by the, his birth. So it's just an interesting thought to, to look at and uh, consider. Now, why do you cry out aloud, is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you, even as the woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. There shall you be delivered, where the Lord shall redeem you from the, land, from the hand of your enemies. We switch, we switch, switch directions all of a sudden. He now is, he's still talking about the future, which is why I gave out these little charts. And right now he's switching from the end of the, end of the day, uh, time of the world, the last days, to a point that's only 110 years away from his time that he's produced, uh, speaking at the, at the lowest. And that's if he's speaking this at the end of his preaching of Hezekiah, not at the beginning, which will be much longer period of time. But right now he's 110 years before this is going to happen. Babylon isn't even really a place that anybody's worried about. Because at this point in time, Assyria is coming to power. Okay, Assyria is the is the empire that is out there right now, and Babylon is a city within a, within Assyria. Okay, it is not even contemplating that this is going to be an empire, and yet Micah says that Babylon is going to take and conquer the people. Okay, we get we have to, and this is why I brought the timelines out because this prophecy makes no sense when it's spoken. Okay, because they're gonna—they know what Babylon is. Babylon's been around. The city of Babylon's been around since shortly after the the flood. Okay, the Tower of Babel, uh, Tower of Babel was built in the Valley of Shinar, and Shinar is where Babel is. Uh, Babylon is built, and Babylon is the the city that Nimrod built in honor of his god. So the tower, uh, the the city of Babylon has had a long relationship with gods against the god of the one god all right so and here so they know they know when he says the city of babylon but at the same time they're looking at it well how is babylon going to you know connect uh, be able to take us into captivity they're, they don't exist you know they don't really exist 
as a, as a warring, warring place. But he says, why do you cry out, shout in alarm and distress? You know, is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For the pangs have taken you as the woman in travail. And for anybody who's ever been around a woman in this, that goes into labor or has been in labor, it's always a thing that starts very quickly and usually with a surprise, unless they've planned it with induced labor. But, you know, but you never really know when it's going to happen, and it does cause great pain. Right? Even from the very beginning, it starts causing pain and keeps getting worse until that baby is given, brings forth. But he's saying, you know, hey, what's wrong with you? you know, don't you have a king? Don't you have a counselor? And he's talking now to a people who are rejecting God. So this kind of tells us that he was at the very early part of it, during Ahaz's reign, because Ahaz was a wicked king. And so they were turning from God. And this was a time when they were following Baal and Ashtaroth. And he's saying, hey, you want to trust in your, your God? You want to trust in your counselor? Go, go for it. And it's so, how easy is it for us to trust in things of the world and not in God? When we think about that, how often do we, even as Christians today, we may not turn to what we think is a God, but we'll turn to something other than God for help. Uh, and, it go, and it's expressed in, so, in, in comments like, well, I've tried everything else, maybe I should pray. And God's saying, maybe you should pray first and then let me help you find what to try. But how often do we try to do things our way and help ourselves get out of trouble? And then we kind of go, well, maybe I can just talk to God and see if he'll help. This is the attitude that we have frequently, that we'll trust in just about anything but God. And God is saying, I just want to be your defender. I want to be your helper. And it says, be in pain and labor. Bring forth, O daughters of Zion, like a woman in travail. Now shall you go forth into the city, and shall dwell in the field, and even, and, and you shall go even to Babylon. And there you shall be delivered, for the Lord shall redeem them from the hand of their enemies. Okay, so he's saying, you're going to go to Babylon, and I will eventually redeem you. So it's quite a promise. He goes, you're going to be punished, you're going to Babylon, but I will bring you back. And this idea of God's redemption. God always buys his people back, because he loves us. And we talked about this last night. God loves us. And that separates us from so many other religions and all religions that I know of. They don't have gods of love. They have gods that will tell them what to do, gods that will punish them when they misbehave, but not a God who loves them so much that he's going to give them everything they, that they need. And so Michael here is saying, you're going to be punished. You're going to be punished, and you're going to Babylon. And again, I just point out, this is more than 110 years ahead of time and the idea of them going to Babylon makes no sense. You've got to understand how much little sense that would be. That would be like God coming along and telling us that, uh, you know, oh, by the way, you're going to be conquered and you're going to be conquered by Tijuana. Now, it's like, well, Tijuana doesn't have an army. <laughs> they have a few, a few, few police force, you know. How are we going to be conquered by Tijuana? But it would be that silly of a statement at this time. You know, you're going to be conquered, you know, by this country, you know, this, the, the, you're not even the capital of a country at this moment because that whole area belongs to Assyria. And I'm saying, you know, you're going to be conquered by this little, this little well, in this case, still a good-sized city, but it, it doesn't have an army for you to be worried about. And he says, and by the way, after you're conquered, I will redeem you. And in Micah's case, he does not tell them how long it will be. All right? But remember, they have already been told, they will be told in the future how long it will be. And that is in Jeremiah 25. Does anybody remember how long it'll be? 70 years. 70 years. Very good. And why is it 70 years? That's how long it takes the one to die out and the new to come along. Nope. Because they didn't do, follow the Sabbath of the land for 490 years. They missed, they missed 70 Sabbaths for the year, and God said, okay, I'm going to make it the land rest for 70 years. So Jeremiah 25, 12 says, And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. 
I will bring upon the land all my words that I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in the book which Jeremiah has prophesied against you. So when they went into captivity because of the book of Jeremiah, they knew that it would be 70 years. Now, having said that, not everybody had read all of the prophets because we've talked about this. For the majority of the Jews, even to this day, the most important books in the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. The first five books, the books of the books of Moses and the law. Now they, they don't necessarily say the rest of it is not is totally worthless, but they spend almost all their time in the Pentateuch. And that includes even Orthodox Jews to this day will spend most of their time in the Pentateuch. The really devout Jews will get into often will get into the prophets because the prophets tell them other things. The only other book that they spend much time in is Psalms, and that's because it is a book of music for them. And they actually would sing the Psalms. And as we go through the book of Psalms, some of those are pretty interesting. You know, to be able to sing some of those songs are pretty, uh, would be very interesting. Here we're going to church to, to sing about the history of the country. Uh, we're going to go to Psalms, and we're going to sing about David's repentance. So we see all of this. And they're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and then God's going to redeem them. He's going to bring them back after 70 years. And it does go into this whole picture of God's time frame is different from our time frame. And I keep bringing this up. Abraham is told to leave the Ur of Chaldees. He makes it to Haran. He stops there for about 30 years, and then finally decides to get back on the journey that God told him to do. And during that time, God apparently didn't speak to him because as soon as he moves on, God speaks to him and renews the covenant. You've got Noah who's told, I want you to build this boat. And it doesn't say that God spoke to him again for 120 years when it was time to shut the door of the boat. Now, does that prove that he didn't speak to him? No, but that's a long time to just go on one word. We see all of these people that we look at. You look at Joseph. Joseph's given a dream that his brothers are going to bow down to him and his father's going to bow down to him. Then, he's, then he goes into jail and he spends 17, uh, 13 years in, as a slave and in jail before he's promoted. And then another eight, nine years before he sees his brothers and they bow down to him. How would you like to have that promise where God says, here's your promise, now I'm going to be quiet for 19 years. Uh, 26 years, excuse me. Uh, most of us get, would get irritated with God if he hasn't spoken to us in days. And yet God oftentimes appears to have been silent. We look at the, in Job, where God still said, you know, well, if you consider Job, and then it appears that God is silent during the entire time that Satan takes everything away from him. And his wonderful friends come and criticize him and spends all that time and it doesn't appear that God talks to him and ministers to him. How often would we quit just because we don't feel God? And this is important for us. How often do we go on our feelings rather than on what God says? Way too often. We, in the New Believers class, we had that picture of the, the train engine, the coal car, and the caboose. And it's facts, faith, and feelings, okay? And very important that we don't try to put feelings in the front. A caboose cannot drive the train. <laughs> caboose cannot pull a train. And if we are basing everything on how do I feel, I will be deceived all the time. Because my feelings lie to us. They do. Our feelings lie to us. Uh, something that I perceive to be good makes me feel good. Something that I perceive to be bad makes me feel bad. God says that all things work together for good. Should anything make me feel bad? Not if I'm really confident in God. I should say, okay, God, I may not understand it, but it's for good. And I may feel neutral about it, because I'm not telling anybody feel good about <laughs> bad things that happen to you. Because that, there's something wrong with you mentally if you're feeling good about bad things. But we should at least be God's in control. I'm at peace with all these bad things happening to me, because he is in control. And that goes back to the front of the engine. The engine is the facts. God says all things work together for good. 
God says he's in control. God tells us that nothing can happen to us unless he's allowed it. And as long as we base all of our decisions on facts, we have a better walk with God. The minute we try to base it all on, well, I just don't feel like I'm saved today. Something must be wrong. I must not be saved. We're in trouble if we get into that attitude. This gets us into the attitude, the, the, the teaching in the Western world that get saved and everything's going to be good. God's going to plant you in this uh, garden of uh, unicorns and sunshine and, and flowers all the time and you'll never have a bad day. That is such a terrible message that is given out to people because Satan attacks. And if that's what you are believing Christianity to be and you get attacked, you're going to feel that you were lied to and you were. So we want to be able to say, feelings are important. Feelings are good, especially if we just put them in the right place. When we're feeling good, it's easy to, easier to follow God. But when we're feeling bad, we put our, we put our hope in the, fa in the facts and in faith that God is true. And it doesn't matter what we feel. It, it's drug along by the, by the engine, by the facts and the faith. And eventually, we will finally agree with God. Yes, everything is good. You're in control and all, and all of that. But here, the people were going to go into captivity. And they were told they were going to go into captivity. They weren't told the exact day. And even in Jeremiah's day, they weren't told the exact day of, until right toward the end, saying, don't fight because God says you're going to go to Babylon. And so we need to be very careful as we look at this, is that God is still in control. Sometimes he lets us get an inkling of what's coming. Just as in the book of Revelation, he gives us a real guide on what's coming. For us, it won't matter because we won't be here. We will be raptured. But the world has bad things coming to them. And then it says, the Lord will redeem, buy back. And God has bought back man through Jesus Christ. That redemption of people. Because, why? Because God loves us. Why does God love us? Who knows? <laughs> it makes no sense to me because he's totally righteous, totally holy. It doesn't make much sense that he loves us. And yet he loves us enough, enough to, number one, have created us, knowing that we were going to fall. And I've said over and over again, I, if it was me, I wouldn't have done that. It doesn't make any sense to create man knowing that they're going to fall. Now, obviously, it makes sense to God and for something he understands and, and considers. But he never had to create us. And he created us knowing that we would fall, knowing that Jesus would have to give a sacrifice to buy us back. And yet, he created us so that he could redeem us. That little truth is mind-boggling to me. The idea that he did all of this knowing the cost. It's, the Bible describes Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And it's called the predeterminate council, if you want the fancy name for it, that God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit got together. They basically said, we're going to create man. Man's going to fall. And son, will you give your life for him? And Jesus agreed. And the minute he agreed, God looked at him as the sacrificed lamb because he was going to do it. And he knew that as soon as Jesus said, yes, I would, that he would do it. And he created man. And we know that the salvation plan wasn't an afterthought because in Genesis 3, he says that you're out from your seed, woman, that a man will come and the serpent will strike his heel, bruise his heel, and he will crush the serpent's head. It was part of the plan all along. Jesus is the... Slain, lamb slain before the foundation of the world to buy us back. What love that is. And this is the love we want to express to people when we share the gospel. How many times do people go, well, God can't love me enough. I'm just too bad to be accepted by God. Nobody is too bad to be accepted by God because of the price that Christ paid for them. He's not going to reject anybody. And, you know, we talk about this, you know, as trying to think of who the most evil person you can possibly think of in all of history. And in our day and age, a lot of people will pick Hitler. And uh, I'm not sure that he was the, the most evil. I would pick somebody like Machiavelli or somebody who really was evil. Or even the person that Count Dracula is, 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 put, is uh, modeled on who really was evil. Or Nebuchadnezzar even who started out evil, you know, just killing people for the sake of killing them. 
Now, there were some people that were really, truly evil in history. But every one of them, Jesus died for. He died for anybody. Whatever, whoever the most evil one you think is evil, he died for that individual. So that they could go to heaven if they'll just accept the gift. And we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking, you know, this person is just not going to, you know, listen. Number one, we don't know if they'll listen. One of the greatest things you can do is when you talk to somebody and you're absolutely sure they're not going to listen and all of a sudden they listen and they respond <laughs> because the time is right. And this is why we tell people the gospel. We invite them to church. We tell them about the gospel because one time that you talk to them might be just the time that the veil is lifted from their eyes and their ears and they actually hear the gospel message. There are people who have sat in churches all their life and they would tell people that they're a Christian. And then all of a sudden they realize that they've never been in a relationship with God and get saved. Because the veil is lifted from their eyes and all of a sudden they go, oh, I haven't been there. And this is important for us that we keep the gospel before people. We keep sharing it with our family members. We keep sharing it with those around us. Because we want them to go to heaven. We want them to accept the gift of Jesus. Because if they do not accept Jesus, they will go to hell. And we need to really get hold of that picture. If they do not accept Jesus, they will go to hell. And that means to have a relationship with him, to put all of their hope and faith in Jesus. Many people will tell you, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, or I, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Is the next question. Or why are you a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? I use that term often in the prison and other people that, I, that I'm around. Oh, you're a Christian. What does that mean? And many times I'll hear, well, I'm just a, I do good things. You know, I'm a pretty good person. Sorry, that's not what it means to be a Christian. And we need to, or I believe in Jesus. Okay, what about, what do you believe about Jesus? What is it that you believe about Jesus? We need to pin people down because people learn the language that gets accepted. And they go, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he walked on this world. Okay, what else? Well, that's, isn't that enough? I believe he was real. Uh, you know, or I believe he died for my sins. And what about that? You know, and, and, put, and we want to push to make sure people understand what it is that they believe. Have they believed that they're a sinner deserving punishment and Jesus paid for their sin and he is the only way for them to get to heaven? Very important. Because we hear all kinds of people saying, well, I'm just, I'm good, and I believe in Jesus. He paid for my sin, you know, and that's about as far as they go. They don't have their hope in him. They don't have their faith in him. And it is critical for us as believers. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Teach and make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His, his comment wasn't just go get people to say the sinner's prayer. Okay? And that's what most people try to do. Let me get people to, as many people as possible to say the sinner's prayer. The only problem is if they don't believe it and they're not being taught and they're not becoming disciples, did that prayer mean anything to them? And I've shared with you the, the time I went out soul winning and this person had this poor kid backed up against a wall and just thranged him until he said a prayer. And he said the prayer just so he could get away from her. And I know that's why he said it. You know, and her attitude was God was going to hold him accountable and go, no, you've really hurt this person because he might actually think he's saved now. Might go to hell because you made him say a prayer. We want to be careful. I don't want to ever press somebody to say a prayer. I do want them to understand it's urgent. It needs to be done. But I'm not going to sit there and try to twist their arm because then they're just saying words. And they won't be part of the remnant. Verse 11, now also many nations are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let her, let her eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsels, for they shall, he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will concentrate, consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. So this is talking about what Israel has gone through all of its history. Nations gathering against her. And we see it even to this day. Every nation around Israel wants to see Israel 
wiped off the face of the earth. And then we have idiots in the UN and then like our own government who say, well, they should just make peace, even though these people want to, the only thing these people want is to see them wiped off the face of the earth. They should, they should just, you know, be kind to them. And God is saying that, you know, all these nations are going to, and they want to defile, they want to destroy Zion. And then the word in verse 12, but God has a different plan. They know not the thoughts of the Lord. What are the thoughts of the Lord toward Israel? He's going to bless them. He's going to bless those that bless her and curse those who curse her. They're going to be like the sand of the, the sand. They're going to be as, as numerous as the stars. And they don't understand God's counsel toward Israel. Israel did a miraculous thing. He made, uh, God made Israel a very miraculous thing. He made them a nation after they had not been a nation for over 1,900 years. That's historic. Most countries have been around a little bit and, and remained, but if a country has been pretty much wiped out, they've been absorbed and become part of another country. Israel never got absorbed by all the places they were spread out into. They always maintained most of their Judaism. <laughs> okay? They did take different flavors from different places, but they still stayed as Jews. They still followed the, the feast. They still followed the Old Testament. They, they couldn't sacrifice because they didn't have Jerusalem, but they remained Jews. To this day, that's happened. And now God's given them the country and a great desire. He's put a desire on a lot of the Jews to return home. And you talk to a lot of people who are especially born Jews, not so much the proselyte Jews, but the ones that are born Jews, they, there are many of them that want to go to Israel. Yeah, at least to visit, if not to make it their new home, because it's a place where they're going to be fully accepted. And God is saying, you don't understand. He says, I shall, and he says, he shall gather all these enemies as sheaves, which means he's harvested them and wrapped them up. <laughs> okay? If, if you've ever been around farm country in America, you see bale, you know, they, they harvest the weed and they, they process it into bales. In their day, they just grabbed them all up and they bundled them and they wrapped a cord around them and bundled them in sheaves so they could just pick up the sheaf and carry it. And he says, all these enemies, Israel, I'm just going to make them a sheaf. I'm going to harvest them and make them a sheaf. A big bale of, a big bale of enemy. And then he tells them, arise and thresh. And if you know, the threshing is to strike the, the, the bales, the, the sheaves of, of wheat and, and knock off all of the, off all the seeds and you keep beating them. And that's what you did. You beat them and beat them and beat them on a, on a cloth, and you kept beating them, stepped on them, whatever it took to get the seed off of the, off of the, the would, would then be shaft, and you threw away the bottom parts of it. And then they would throw the seeds up and get the wind to blow away all the little flowery and, and, and leaves and everything out of it, and they just keep throwing it up until they had nothing but seed left. And here he's telling them, Arise, Israel, and thresh your enemies. Take away the valuable things from their enemies. And we see Israel has been victorious in battles for most of its history, except when God has allowed them to be destroyed. They were created into a new nation in 1948. The Arabs went and immediately attacked them very soon thereafter, and Israel won the war and took territory back. And they have had victories ever since. Most of it is not them being so smart and, and special. It is God doing miraculous things for them. And it's wonderful to, to hear the different testimonies of things that God has done. Bombs not blowing up. Missiles falling out of the sky. Uh, whole units surrendering to two, two Israeli unit, you know, men that were holding, holding a pass because they saw more soldiers than the two that they surrendered to. God has done great miraculous things to protect his people. And it's all a gift of grace because they are not following him. They have not obeyed the laws. God, has, God put them back in their land. And it's not because they're righteous. It's not because they're being holy. It's because he said to Abraham, I will make a great nation out of your people. All because of a promise made some four and a half, uh, 4,000 years ago, 4,500 years ago, is why Israel's being blessed today. And any nation who blesses Israel or any people who bless Israel are being blessed because God says to Abraham, 
those who bless you will be blessed. And as we see all the nations of this world pulling away from Israel, including our own, a curse is going to start falling on all these nations that pull away from Israel because God said that's going to happen. And we're going to see devastation. But we also know that when revelation happens, nobody stands for Israel except for God. So in one sense, it's, it's expected and it's known that it's going to happen and it should excite us. But the only problem is it also calls for hardship. Hardship will follow. And so we see God doing this. And it says, I will make your horn iron. Okay, Horn always is, is a picture of power or kingdoms. Okay, So God says, I am going to make your power, your kingdom, like iron. And that day, the hardest substance they had, iron, that they could, that they could use. And I will make your hooves brass. Everything you step on will be covered with this brass, this heavy, heavy weight to crush everything. And so he's saying you're going to be powerful and you're going to crush things. And you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate your ga their gain and consecrate their gain into the Lord and their substance into the Lord of the whole earth. Israel will be victorious in, 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 in their battles. And they have been for the most part. Especially in the last days, they have been very victorious. They were able to fight off Rome for the most part. And then Rome, they invited Rome rather than fight against them. They were able to mostly keep the Greeks from overtaking them so they could stay as the people of Israel. They have maintained their position. They have been a powerful enemy when people have wanted to go against them. They're still a powerful enemy of all the different nations that want to go against them. A little place, no bigger than the state of New Jersey, is able to beat off huge nations all around them and maintain their identity. It is a miracle that they exist. Because in today's weaponry, any weapon that you have that's of any large caliber can go one into the other of Israel. It's just amazing that God's protected them. Because there is no reason no earthly reason that they should still exist. But it's not an earthly reason. It's God himself that's keeping them from being destroyed. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the picture that Micah gives us of the end times of the millennial kingdom of your love and grace for your people Israel, how you maintain a remnant in all of this. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you sent your son to die for us and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to heaven. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.